This morning we're looking at our Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 giving special attention to verses 3 and 4. For the next three weeks I will talk on the theme reclaiming the gospel and evangelism. Reclaiming the gospel and evangelism. I'm going to talk this morning about the definition of the gospel to make sure we understand what is the gospel because if you don't understand the gospel then you'll never do true evangelism. Secondly, next week I will talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. That there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I will touch on somewhat the question that is often raised, uh, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And I will answer that question from the Bible. The third week, I want to talk about the intentionality of evangelism. What we truly need to do to reach people for Christ. And my concern is that we are good at many things, but we are not real good at evangelism. And by evangelism, I mean the clear communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that don't know him. And uh, I don't mean knocking on doors, though we may do that. I don't mean standing on a street corner, though we may do that. And I don't mean preaching from the pulpit, though we certainly do that. I mean the interpersonal communication of the gospel with family and friends and neighbors and co-workers. And I think one of the reasons we don't do that is we don't have a clear definition of the gospel. When I talk about the gospel and evangelism together, I do that because essentially they are, they cannot be separated. Both what we call the gospel and the word evangelism. Actually, the word evangelism is not an English word. It's a Greek word that is brought over into the English language. Uh, euangelizo, uh, evangelism, which simply means to announce the gospel, to preach the gospel. And the Greek word for gospel is simply uh, evangel, the good news, the announcement of good news. And so gospel and evangelism are rooted in the same uh, word family. They are connected. They cannot be separated. When we talk about the gospel here at Grace Church, we try to be clear in distinguishing what we call the gospel itself and the implications, the fruits, the consequences of the gospel. The gospel is never about what I do or what I believe or what religious activity I have done. Whenever somebody, when I ask somebody, are you a Christian? And they begin to say, well, uh, I was baptized. I go to church. Uh, I've been raised this way. Whenever it begins with I, then 
they probably don't really understand what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who believes, who submits to, who surrenders to, who rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I ask someone, if you were to stand before God today and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And if your answer begins with, I, you know, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments, I've tried to do my best. Uh, if it begins with I, then you don't understand what it means to be in a right relationship with God. The, the, the gospel is very simple, Paul says, as we'll see in our text. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The good news is about what God has accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news is not about how I am being changed or how I am being blessed or how I am serving. The good news is what God has accomplished for sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's this proclamation about Christ, the Messiah, that's rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament spoke of one who would come, who would experience both suffering and glory in order to rescue mankind and to deliver the entire world from the curse of sin. We believe the gospel is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I am not the good news. If you know me long enough, you will find some bad news about me. But Jesus is always good news. He is always the perfect son of God who died, lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and rose again that we might be accepted by a holy God. Look at our text with me this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
In the title of my theme, I talk about reclaiming the gospel. And by reclaiming, I'm indicating that both the gospel and evangelism are lost. I know many years ago when I wrote my thesis for my Doctor of Ministry, ministry degree, I wrote it on evangelism, on personal evangelism. And I remember David Barrett saying 40 years ago, he made this statement. He was sort of lamenting the state of evangelism in the world. And he said, he, he lamented that evangelism had changed from what he called the big six. And by big six, he says, evangelism was always preach, bring, tell, proclaim, announce, declare. That evangelism was always the communication, the verbal communication of the good news about Jesus Christ. But then he lamented that 40 years ago, evangelism now has 180 different meanings. And I sort of think today, 40 years later, that it's not 180 different meanings, it's probably 360 or 720 different meanings of evangelism. And when evangelism becomes everything, from feeding the poor to social justice to doing good works to loving your neighbor, all of which are good things to do, but when that becomes evangelism, when everything becomes becomes evangelism, then there is no true evangelism. And so in my thinking, in order to reclaim evangelism, we must first reclaim a clear definition of the gospel. Paul says that this gospel is of first importance. It should be on the tip of our tongues. It should be at the forefront of our minds. It should have the central place in our heart. It certainly ought to be in our singing and in our preaching and in our, uh, in our worship of God. It is of first importance, he says. But what is the gospel? Let me uh, answer that from our text in four different ways to help us understand uh, the definition of the gospel. First of all, Paul makes it clear that the gospel is about this unique person. And he simply calls him Christ. Christ died for our sins. Now he could have said Jesus died for our sins and that would have been equally as true. But for Paul it's important that we recognize that this one who died for our sins is none other than the Messiah because Greek Christos, Christ, is simply the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, as we would transliterate it. Paul wants us to be sure that this one who dies for our sins is the one who is rooted in Old Testament prophecy and scripture. He is the one who is the promised anointed one of God. 
He is, as John says, the only begotten of God, the only begotten Son, that unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. Jesus warned that in the last days, and as we understand the New Testament, the last days really are initiated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are living in the end of the world. And Jesus said that there would be many claims to be in Christ. That there would be many messages out there of some kind of Savior, some kind of Messiah who can deliver you. And if you've listened uh, over the years, if you've been here that long, you've heard Gary preach and myself and others talk about the different Jesuses that are out there. And we, we call them by different names. We talk about the prosperity Christ. You know, the, the, the Jesus who makes you healthy and wealthy and prosperous in life. And, you know, if you watch enough of religious TV, then you realize that there are, the, the, the airwaves are filled with false prophets who are telling you about a prosperity Christ or what we may call a therapeutic Christ who is a savior who just wants to make you feel good he just wants to heal your emotional life or we talk about an unholy Christ that there's a Messiah who doesn't care about your sin he doesn't care about uh, how you live your life uh, all he cares about is that you know that he's a God of love and you can keep living in your sin and still say that you believe in this Messiah or we talk about the moral example Christ that all he wants for you is to Try to be good, try to be better. Or the religious Christ who just wants you to go to church and do religious things and we could go on and on. You know, I, I talk about the Elmo Christ. You know, that little game where you try to find Elmo lost in all of those images. And, and there are theologians who are still looking for Jesus. Uh, they don't believe that the one who came 2,000 years ago is the Christ. So they're still looking for what they call the historical Christ. But when Paul uses the word, Christ died for our sins. For him that title is informed by the entire context of scripture, by all of the Old Testament predictions, by the gospels which give us four pictures of the historical reality of Christ and the epistles which inform his person and his work. When John the Baptist was put in prison, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus and he asked, are you the one who should come? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another one? And Jesus said, go tell John that the lame walk, the blind see, the sick 
are healed and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus said, if John knows the Old Testament prophets, specifically if he knows Isaiah and he knows Isaiah's portrait of the Messiah, then he can see in my life and ministry that I fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. I am the Messiah. And of course, later Jesus would say that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of Malachi, that before the Messiah would come, before the day of the Lord would come, Elijah would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus said, you know, if you can receive it, if you look at John, John is Elijah. The gospel is first of all about this unique person who can only be defined as scripture defines him, who is rooted in the Old Testament predictions and prophecies. But secondly, when I ask what is the gospel, my answer is the gospel is God's only solution to our greatest need. That is, if you don't understand what humankind's, what man and woman's greatest need is, you, can never, you will never define the gospel properly. If you don't understand the need for the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. If you can't diagnose what a man's main problem is, then you cannot come up with the right remedy. False gospels are like a doctor that treats you for a common cold when you are dying of cancer. False prophets, false teachers, prosperity teachers, health, wealth teachers, moral example teachers, do good religious teachers, political organizing religious teachers, all misunderstand what is the greatest need and so their solution, the kind of Jesus they put forth is not the Jesus that meets our greatest need. Our greatest problem is simple to Paul. Christ died for our prosperity. Is that what it says? Christ died for our sins. Our greatest problem is sin. Sin that alienates us from that holy God of whom we sang at the beginning of the service this morning. Sin is my problem. If I don't understand that, then I end up preaching another gospel. And that is why so many churches today that we call theologically light churches with therapeutic preaching that makes you feel good about some of the felt needs in your life. They just don't understand that your greatest problem is not that you are unhappy in life. Your greatest problem is that you have sin that alienates you from a holy God. 
churches with their health and wealth and prosperity preaching who simply want to make you, as one preacher said, have your best life now. Don't understand what your deepest and greatest problem is. That you have sin that alienates you from a holy God. And you can be happy, happy, happy all the way to hell without Jesus Christ. Churches with preaching that condones the sexual and moral stanzas of today's world don't believe our greatest problem is sin. They believe that our greatest problem is we're not free. You need to be free, not bound by the moral standards that somebody like God externally imposes on you. Churches that merely focus on religious activity and social, political engagement really don't believe that our greatest problem is sin. They believe that it's the government or the leaders or some human need that is unmet out there. But you will never find in the Bible that our biggest problem is self-esteem or insecurity or lack of money or rejection or lack of social status or loneliness or unjust laws or corrupt politics, though all of them may be realities in life. Our deepest need is to be rescued from our sin, which deserves the penalty of death and damnation. It's because of our sin that we need Christ to die for us. We need forgiveness. We need an eternally secure hope. And the only good news, the only gospel is Christ died for our sins. This is the true Christ. The one who dies Literally, in behalf of our sins. He died a willing, substitutionary death for our sins. And I understand theologically there are many ways to understand what took place on the cross. You can talk about... Christ's triumph over evil, his triumph over Satan, his demonstration of the love of God, his example of humility and self-denial, all of them are realities that are, that are portrayed by the cross. But the core of understanding what happened at the cross is Christ died for our sins. That his sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice that he died the death that I deserve. He suffered the wrath that I deserve. We cannot understand what the gospel is unless we truly come to grips with what is my deepest need in life. And my deepest need in life is to be forgiven of and rescued from that sin that alienates me from a holy God. And I need someone who not only dies for my sin, I need someone, as Paul says, who is resurrected who comes to 
give me new life, who assures me of new life. He not only delivers me from the wrath of God, but he offers me hope, not only now, but hope for an eternal future with God. And I don't know of anything that the world that we're living in needs more than hope. Because we live in a world that is filled with despair. Filled with disappointment and heartache and sadness. And it may be a well-medicated world or a drugged up world or a drunken world that often tries to escape the reality that, that there's something wrong, there's something broken in the world that I'm living in. And there's no way to fix it apart from Jesus Christ. I don't want to diminish the reality of poverty or the reality of sickness or the reality of emotional pain that all of us are subject to in this world. And I don't want to say that I wouldn't wish all of that for others, that they could be delivered from poverty and be delivered from injustice and be delivered from sickness. I just want to remind us that if we're preaching the gospel, if we do evangelism, then we must know what is someone's greatest need. As a Christian, every day I wake up with problems to solve and challenges to face. So do you. That's the nature of the world we're living in. But on the other hand, every day I wake up, I wake up knowing that my greatest problem has already been resolved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My greatest challenge has already been conquered by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in knowing that, knowing that the problem of sin and alienation from God and judgment and wrath has already been resolved, knowing that gives me the, the energy and the joy to face the problems of life and face the struggles and challenges of life. And even if they don't go away, I still live with the joy knowing that my greatest problem has been resolved by the cross of Jesus Christ. I like C.H. Spurgeon's simple words, his simple prayer. He says, God, you see me in Christ. Here is comfort for a tired and afflicted soul. God, you see me in Christ. I'm living in a world my soul is tired and afflicted. But this is my comfort knowing that in Christ I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm chosen, I'm forgiven. I am secure forever. If you don't know that, 
If you've not come to the place in your life where you have realized that your greatest problem is sin, then you probably live with guilt and shame or feeble attempts at what we call self-justification. You're trying to do good, be better, trying to uh, placate God's wrath yourself, trying to earn God's favor yourself. Apart from Christ, if you don't know that your greatest problem is sin and that Christ has solved it, then you either live with despair or you may live with hope, but it's a false hope that may sustain you for days or weeks or months or year or maybe even a lifetime, but it will not sustain you eternally. What is the gospel? For Paul, only the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again, is based on the infallible authority of God's word. This is important to Paul. Because he is staking his life day to day, and a tough life it was, and his eternity on the word of God. That God made a promise, Jesus fulfilled it, and this is what I believe. You know, in some sense, everybody lives by faith. Everybody. You believe something. Maybe you believe your dreams or your experiences. You believe in the power of money. You believe in religious activity. Maybe you have some particular guru that you listen to and you read their books and you listen to their talk shows and, and you, you believe this and you stake your hope that their words will guarantee you a better life. So the question everyone should be asking is, upon whose word are you staking your hope? For the Apostle Paul, there existed in his day an inspired, authoritative narrative that he called Scripture. Some would say that Possibly the Gospel of Mark was written already at this time, though most would say it wasn't. But all would agree, Paul certainly is referring to the 66, uh, 66 the 39 books of the Old Testament. The 22 Hebrew books composed in our 39 books. That to him, this was the word of God. That it told a story from the beginning, from Genesis to Malachi. That it was giving a promise. And that at the heart of that story was someone called the Messiah. Who would suffer and be glorified. 
Paul asserts that Jesus died and rose again according to the scripture. He was sure that if you read the Old Testament, you would conclude that the Messiah would be one who would suffer and the Messiah would be one who would come to glory. And even in rabbinical teaching up until the 11th century AD, even rabbis believed in a Messiah who would suffer. And then there was a change that took place that no longer did they read Isaiah chapter 53 as, as the Messiah. Instead, they saw themselves as the suffering nation. But anyone who reads Isaiah 53, Jew or Gentile, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I remember reading that to a Jewish friend one day. And he said, he didn't know what I was reading from. I said, who is this? He said, that's Jesus. And then I told him that was out of his Bible. He knew it was Jesus. Jesus, when he walked with the men on the road to Emmaus, took them to the scriptures. And he showed them from the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer and then come to glory. And later when he met with the disciples, he again showed them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, that the Messiah must suffer and then come to glory. Paul staked his life and his eternity On the gospel of Jesus Christ that is based upon the word of God, the promise of God. And to me, that's the simplest apologetic for me. People say, why do you believe the Bible is full of errors? Well, show me one. They normally can't, so you move on. They're just repeating what somebody else told them. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, the main reason I do is because Jesus did. He believed the Old Testament. He authorized the writers of the New Testament. And I believe him because of this. He rose from the dead. I don't believe the Quran. Because Muhammad died. He's dead. I don't believe the writings of great Hindu leaders. They're all dead. I believe the word of God because Jesus believed the word of God. And the gospel that we preach is based upon the authority of scripture. It is the only message that has God's authority behind it. 
Men can make all of the promises they want to. And I hear preachers thinking that they have some infallible authority to command and decree blessing on people. I, I, I've watched them get up and, and look at someone and say, I decree that 2020 is going to be a year of prosperity and blessing for you. And I sit there and say, you're full of... Mm, you're full of baloney. You have no power to do that. God's word has power to decree and declare blessing and promise. From beginning to end of scripture, God is writing a story at the heart of which is Jesus Christ. And if you will be a part of that eternal story that began in eternity past when God planned creation and planned redemption, where Christ was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, to the new creation when we will live with this loving, benevolent, good, redeeming God forever. God's writing a story that you become part of when you confess Christ died for my sins according to the scripture and he rose again. If you confess that, then you become part of God's story of redemption and of restoration. And without that, you have nothing but a story of death and destruction. All of God's purposes for this world are centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, when you understand the, the simplicity and yet the profundity, the power, the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes your life. Paul was not staking his life on some fragile, fleeting, vacillating experience that he may have had. He was staking his life on the finished, final, triumphant, never-ending work of Jesus Christ. Christ died and he rose again. That's it. It's done. And let me say, fourthly, that this gospel, that Christ died for our sins, and rose again according to the scripture. This gospel is the only good news that can produce what I call a life-encompassing stewardship with eternal rewards. It's the only thing that can bring into your life something worth living for that has eternal consequences. Now I realize there's other things that can become life encompassing. Yeah. You can become a professional musician and music becomes your life and 
You can become an athlete and music becomes your life. You may become a very successful businessman and business becomes your life and family can become your life. And these may be all good things, but as my dad reminded me often, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through or seal. Don't lay up your treasure on earth. Live your life for Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Rest in him. Love him. Serve him. Enjoy him. Only the gospel has eternal consequences. You can listen to someone who's giving you financial advice, and it may be good advice, and you may disregard it and end up with the IRS knocking at your door. Or you may follow it and do things properly and succeed financially in life. But it doesn't affect eternity. But what you do with the gospel, and Paul's concerned about this at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul says, on my part, when it came to the gospel, I, I received it, and I preached it, and I delivered it to you. And he says, you believed it, and you received it, and you stood in it, and you held fast to it. And he says, and you must keep holding fast to it unless you believe in vain. Now don't get me wrong, there is nowhere in the Bible that ever indicates that someone who had genuine faith, who was a genuine believer, ever became an apostate. The Bible's quite clear. If God saves you, God saves you. He doesn't do half a job. He doesn't do a tentative job. If he saves you in Christ, he saves you. And when he gives you eternal life, he gives you eternal life. And you will never perish. So there's no indication of genuine faith ever becoming apostate, though there is much evidence in Scripture, both in the teaching of Jesus and of Paul and the writer of Hebrews, that it's possible to have faith that is not genuine. It's possible to say, I believe, but not really believe deeply in the heart to the point where you have been made alive and regenerated by the Spirit of God. And this concerns me. You know, one of the most difficult and perhaps even dangerous things is to grow up Christian. Because when you grow up Christian, when your grandparents are Christian, your parents are Christian, you've always been a Christian. But the truth is, no one has ever always been a Christian. You become a Christian when you understand that your deepest need is your sin that alienates you from God. 
and that the only remedy for your sin is Christ who died in your place and rose again. And when you come to grips with that personally and say, yeah, what God says about me is true and what God did in Christ is true and I accept that, I believe that, I surrender to that, you become a Christian. But I meet nice church people all the time. They could be Presbyterian or Baptist or Reformed or Methodist or Lutheran or Pentecostal who are nice people. They make nice neighbors. They do good things. But they don't understand the gospel. They've never come to that place in their life where they really felt deeply convicted of their sin and their alienation from God. They have this sense in them that, you know, I'm, I'm bad, but I'm more good than I'm bad. And I've always been pretty good. And I had good parents and went to a good church and I even had a good baptism when I was a baby. They can cite the Apostles' Creed, but they don't live in awe of what Christ did for them on the cross. I like what Jonathan Edwards concluded about what he calls distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God in your life. And he says, there's at least five distinguishing marks that God has saved you, that God has put his spirit in you. Here they are. Number one, he says, you have a high esteem for Jesus Christ. You love him. Number two, he says, you've experienced the overthrow of Satan's kingdom in your heart. That though sin may still be a reality, the power of sin has been broken. You are different within. Satan no longer rules in your heart. Thirdly, he says, you have a reverent view and close attention to God's word in scripture. Fourthly, he says, the presence of the spirit of God, the spirit of truth is in you, convincing you of the reality of eternity and of the depth of your own sin and your need of Christ. If you're a believer, you never start feeling like, man, I am so good now that God must, he must be overwhelmed. He must want to save me all over again just because I'm good now. Now, if the Spirit of God's working in your heart, he knows the depth of your sin and your capacity and your disposition and your lusts and your desires. And when you're born again, the Spirit of God is convicting me of that. I'm aware of it. And then fifthly, he says, the fifth distinguishing mark of the Spirit of God is a deep love for God 
and for others. Do you still live with hate? Especially if you hate your brother? How does the love of God dwell in you? If you can't love your enemies, that's what Jesus said that we do. We love our enemies. We do good to them that hate us. We pray for those who despitefully use us. Why do you do that? Because the Spirit of God is living in me and he's created in us a new capacity to love God and love people. Not just lovable people, but the unlovable, the extra grace required people of life. We must understand the good news centered in Jesus Christ. Our need of that good news. Our deepest need that the good news meets in our life. We must understand that this alone, this saving message alone is based on the word of God. And this alone can change our life both for time and for eternity. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, help us to experience the deep work of your spirit, making us alive to you and to Jesus Christ, breaking Satan's rule in our hearts, transforming us to love both you and others. Causing us to fight against the sin that so often arises in our hearts. Thank you for the convicting work of your spirit. Thank you for the word of God and for the love that you've created in our hearts to love the word of God, to love the Bible, and to base our lives on it. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. May we stake our hope on your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.